the Cybersecurity and Compliance Podcast with Craig Petronella. Learn about the most current IT security threats in ransomware, phishing, business email compromise, cybercrime tactics, cyber heist schemes, social engineering scams, as well as hints and tips from leading professionals to help you prevent hackers from penetrating your network and dropping ransomware or malware payloads. This podcast will arm you with the best info to defend your network against the latest cyber crimes. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And now, here's your host, Craig Petronella. You're listening to Cybersecurity and Compliance with Craig Petronella. Visit us online at petronellatech.com. Well, my name is Steve Barron, and I am a founding member of a law firm in Chicago, Illinois, uh, called Barron Harris Healy. We are a commercial law firm with uh, emphasis and practice areas in media, uh, advertising, and marketing law. Uh, we defend publishers uh, of all stripes in uh, matters that face that they may face involving the materials that they publish. Uh, I also practice in the areas of intellectual property law, data privacy and security, commercial transactions, and general commercial litigation. Um, I've had some exposure to the topic of uh, ADA website accessibility because some of my clients have been hit uh, with either threats of lawsuits or actual lawsuits relating to ADA claims. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate you joining. This is a hot topic right now that my audience is eager to find answers to and looking forward to you shedding some light on this topic. So thank you again for joining. Pleasure. My pleasure. I'll do the best I can. So um, ADA compliance has become um, kind of the hot topic in recent months, more so than ever, it seems, when I was doing some research on it. But the problems that I've found is there's a lot of misinformation and conflicting information. There's a lot of products available online of companies that are using scare tactics on, you need to buy this widget to protect your website and make sure you're ADA compliant. And I've even seen some uh, news publications about uh, small business owners that are um, just selling shoes or something simple in a mall outlet. I think it was out of Florida. Um, and they got hit with a 50,000 plus fine for just completely out of nowhere with with um, not even an opportunity to fix or remediate the issue. So I just wanted to ask you a few questions, if I may, and, and see what your what your thoughts are. Absolutely. Happy to happy to, to do the best I can. Uh, if you want, also, I'm happy to to just give a, a quick, brief thumbnail yeah, history please. of the ADA. Um, so when when you say ADA, of course, uh, we lawyers throw on acronyms all the time. That stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that is a federal law that was put in place in the very early 1990s during the uh, first George Bush administration. Um, <clears throat> if you think about your internet history, uh, you know, 1990 or 91 was kind of before the internet became what it is today. It wasn't that hub of commerce. Uh, that it is today. People didn't have websites like they do today. So the ADA was written for a different era. And <laughs> it covered, you know, different kinds of, uh, of um, you know, businesses, governmental entities. But uh, the focus, uh, I think, probably for today is Title III of the ADA, which covers what are called public accommodations. And when the ADA came into being back in the early 90s, they listed, you know, uh, essentially about a dozen or so examples 
of the kinds of public accommodations, uh, you know, private public account, private accommodations, private businesses that would be considered public accommodations because somehow they affect commerce. And that was what the ADA was meant to apply to. Uh, so just to give you a flavor or an example, uh, the law lists places of lodging like hotels and motels, establishes that serve food and drink, obviously restaurants and bars, places of exhibition uh, and entertainment, movie houses, theaters, et cetera, places of public gathering, auditoriums, convention halls. Anyway, I'm not gonna go down the whole list, but you get the idea that when the ADA was first passed, uh, what was on the minds of lawmakers then was, how can we make places of public accommodation physically accessible to people with disabilities. So the mindset was about physical places and that was what existed then. And now of course, with the explosion of the internet, with so much happening on websites, so much content available, so much commerce being conducted on the internet, uh, there's been this movement over time to expand the reach of the ADA to websites. And so, you know, your, your questions today, I think, are really aimed at oh, what are the contours today about website accessibility? Who needs to be worried about whether their website is accessible? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Okay. So I just wanted to give that kind of background. No, so that's that great. People with listening or watching to this might, might have at least that frame of reference. Thank you. Okay. So... Um, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, so um, yeah, moving, modernizing this this regulation, it sounds like it needs to be updated <laughs> since it's a little uh, out of date, I guess. Um, so what's what's your take on, from a website angle, from a, from an angle of, you know, um, are there any types of businesses that don't need to comply? You know, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So it's a little murky, uh, and I'm not surprised that in your own research, you found sort of inconsistent uh, information online about this. And the, the reason for that is that uh, I think jurisdictions around the country have not necessarily treated the issue particularly uniformly. Um, <clears throat> the, the federal courts uh, across the country are divided up into various circuits. Here in Chicago, for example, we're in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, and um, I think where you are out there in North Carolina, maybe the Fourth Circuit, I believe. In any event, the, the courts of appeal that have had to deal with the applicability of the ADA to websites have uh, come down in different ways on different issues about the scope and application of uh, ADA website accessibility to different kinds of websites. So I'll give you one example, okay? Uh, there's a um, it remains today a bit of an issue over whether a website that has no nexus or connection to a physical place has to be ADA accessible. What I mean by that is there is a, a body of some courts out there and some circuits have said the ADA only applies to websites where there is a companion physical place of business. Okay, so by way of example, if you go to dunkindonuts.com, Dunkin' Donuts also has a set of retail stores where you can go and actually get your donuts, right? You may be able to go online and see where the stores are. Maybe you can even order donuts online. But 
um, there's physical locations where you can go. And so some courts have said there has to be that companion physical location in order for the ADA to apply. Other courts have said, no, there doesn't need to be a physical place, a physical uh, uh, nexus to a nexus or connection to a physical place in order for the ADA to apply. So that's one area of dissonance uh, among some of the courts that have dealt with this situation. Okay. Um, you know, there may be, um, there may be uh, some misinformation about whether the ADA applies to small businesses. The answer is yes, it does. There isn't a threshold uh, at which the ADA doesn't apply. Um, so even a small, you know, sole proprietor type business could at least theoretically be a target for an ADA lawsuit. Um, now, having said that, you know, in my experience, the, the, the lawyers who are bringing these cases around the country are, you know, have typically aimed for larger enterprises uh, for obvious reasons. The impact may be felt more largely if the case is brought as a class action lawsuit. It may be, you know, better to have a larger target defendant. Um, but having said that, we've had some very small, closely held family-run businesses that have uh, either received threats of uh, lawsuits or been sued for uh, ADA violations. So there isn't a size limitation. That's, that's a point I want to make clear to, to the um, viewers today is that there's no size limitation to the type of business that can, that can be um, targeted for this. Okay. Uh, another question I think that comes up is, is there a limitation on, uh, you know, uh, websites that don't do any online commerce where, you know, there's no, um, there's no actual, you know, transaction that occurs on the website? And the answer is, again, um, not necessarily. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, my website has a as an online presence, we don't do any business of law on the website. We don't give advice. We don't take client intakes on our website. Uh, it's just simply a, an expanded calling card, I will say, right? It's a marketing, mm -hmm. like, like a many brochure. websites. Okay, like a brochure. Uh, you can read about us. By the way, it's bhhlawfirm.com. Um, uh, you can um, hear about it or you can read about us on our website. Does, does that kind of a website, that sort of marketing brochure website, arise to the level of a public accommodation? The answer is, you know, not entirely clear under the law. Again, those types of websites have not historically been targets for uh, claims or lawsuits under the ADA uh, because there isn't a, you know, a commercial transaction. But you know, nonetheless, if a blind person comes to a website and cannot read about uh, the business, cannot understand what it is they do, or a deaf person comes to the website and there's some video without any kind of closed captioning, and they can't understand what is being said in that video, uh, even though it's just simply a marketing piece, uh, I think the ADA does not necessarily exclude that from coverage, okay? As I say, it's not, uh, these have not been targets uh, on any sort of broad scale for uh, ADA claims, but I don't think anybody should uh, believe that they can um, claim 
immunity simply because it's a marketing piece and there isn't any transaction or commerce that's going on on the website. I think all websites really have to be mindful <clears throat> that um, there is, um, you know, a potential threat. And one other thing I will tell you, not that I'm you know, advocating one way or the other in this area, but, um, you know, a lot of the plaintiff's lawyers will say, look, it's good business, right? Well, why would you want to not have a site that is not accessible to people that have challenges, whether they're sight challenges or hearing challenges or other disabilities, your goal in, in the world ought to be to make your website um, <clears throat> understandable and accessible to as many people in the world as possible. So you're only hurting yourself if you don't you know, take those steps. So that, that's sort of the pitch that you hear from plaintiff's lawyer. I think that's good information. I think so a couple things come to mind when you were talking about the website and the brochure component and the commerce area. What is a little confusing to me or a question that I have that came up is, well, what if there's a payment link in the footer to make a payment? Like I've seen law firms have a payment portal link and I've seen other firms uh, that are business to business, generally speaking, to take payment right. from their clients, right? Does that equate to e-commerce? Like what, you know, I guess the hard part to to wrap my arms around this on, and I think a lot of viewers and as well as listeners have challenges with, it's not black or white. It sounds like there's a lot to be discussed and a lot of the scoring tools um, when you grade yourself, like on on the, the compliance factor, it's sometimes out of a hundred, for example. So how do you know, like if you make effort, obviously I think that most viewers and listeners want to make a good effort and want to include everyone and, and try their best. I think the concern happens though, is getting a letter, you know, that is demanding, you know, and threatening and, and scary. Right. Um, sure. But then not having time to remediate, just having, you know, you have this huge, you know, small business. I mean, I've, I, in the research that I looked at, some of the fees were 50,000 or higher. I mean, that would just crush a small business, the average one anyway, they can't just write a check like that. So what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, it's a fair question and a, and a challenge. And and obviously, uh, you know, the smaller the business, the bigger the challenge. Sometimes, a couple of a couple of responses. One is that the law says you must make a reasonable accommodation, and of course, reasonable is a wonderful lawyer word, right? It, it allows us full employment a lot of right. times. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Uh, but reasonableness varies depending on the nature and size of the business, right? So, you know, the ma and pa shop or the sole proprietor that's you know, doing small business and, you know, making, um, you know, a six-figure revenue per year uh, and a modest income off of that is not going to be, you know, held to the same level of uh, accessibility in terms of reasonableness that, you know, a large corporation might that is doing, you know, millions or billions of dollars worth of <laughs> revenue every year and has way more resources. So that's one thing to keep in mind. A second thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, there are, and I think maybe embedded in your question is, you know, how, how do you, what do you do either after you've gotten such a letter or before you get such a letter or a threat of a, a lawsuit to, um, to sort of see where you stand? There are many tools out there 
And there are more and more companies now that are promoting themselves as ADA website um, experts and uh, compliance companies. Uh, so I would say you have to have a little bit of let the buyer beware in this space because um, there are probably some that are better than others. But uh, the one thing I will say is that <clears throat> uh, be a little bit wary of those companies that say they can test your website solely with uh, machine algorithm. Uh, machine algorithms are fine and they might give you some uh, starting bases for a report on those parts of your website that maybe have some issues. But there always has to be some level of human intervention, uh, you know, to check and see what, you know, is actually happening to the consumer experience. So I think anytime you, you are looking to hire a consultant to, to help you with this, you should not just stop at the, at the machine readable stuff. I think you have to go to the level of uh, having actual human intervention to test and take a look at what's, what's happening on your website. Um, I think that it's probably good, it would be good sense in this era for even small businesses to put on their you know, budgets coming up some level of resource toward doing some examination and testing um, and begin to make remediation. One of the reasons that's helpful is that under the law, under the ADA itself, uh, a plaintiff who sues or makes a claim against a website can get uh, an injunction, which is a court order to require you to make changes and attorney's fees, okay? There's no damages, there's no economic damages that you can win. If you can demonstrate that you have already begun the remediation process, that you're in that process, that helps you take away the need for an injunction and it may mitigate the risk of attorney's fees. So starting is always better than doing nothing, okay? Even if you can't finish or even if it's not perfect, Remember, it's only a reasonable accommodation. And then another easy fix to, to think about for small businesses is to have a prominent place where your customers, to the extent you're doing you know, e-commerce, can telephone uh, you and make an order that way or make an inquiry that way. Uh, so not that that necessarily is a perfect absolutely, you know, legal surefire way to get around the reasonable accommodation piece, but not having a phone number is, you know, not going to help you at all. So having a phone number and the phone number being screen readable and accessible, uh, you're not buried at the bottom of your website in fine print, right. I think is, you know, a good first step for a lot of small businesses. That's good advice. So it sounds like if you have, um, some documentation showing that you're making efforts, like you said, the phone number, um, sounds like it would be recommended to do some type of assessment, maybe on an annual basis to just see what your web properties look like, um, see how compliant they are, maybe run some of these free tools or, or check you know, the, 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 the percentage of compliance, how it's viewed by the tool and like the screen, later, the screen reader technology that you had mentioned. So it sounds like those are good things. You had brought up um, an address earlier. You had said that if you have a physical address, what about the folks that are working from home or what about the smaller business consultants that put their home address or maybe they have a virtual office? How, how do you think that that plays into this? 
Well, um, you know, remember we're talking about, at least to, for the purposes of our discussion today, we're talking about website accessibility. Yeah. Um, so if you're a small business and uh, you have a website where you're interacting with your clients in some way, um, that's, you know, the property that we're dealing with here, that we're focusing on accessibility, where you are and where you work from is uh, kind of beside the point, right? Okay. It's, um, it's, it's really is the website that you're putting out there that you're holding out to the public to engage them. Uh, you know, is it number one, a public accommodation? And number two, if it is, you know, is it accessible um, in accord with the ADA? Uh, so I think uh, I, I hear what you're saying that, you know, a lot of people, including myself, have migrated to working in whole or in part from home. But, you know, that's almost beside the point. It's really, you know, what is your website doing out there? And is it preventing people from getting access to you? And it doesn't really matter where you are. It matters, you know, what their experience is with the website. Okay. That's good information. Something else came to mind. So um, is it a an option for website um, developers or business owners to create a version of the website that's kind of dumbed down, meaning it's just text or HTML and not a lot of graphics, not a lot of um, slider technology or, you know, just nice uh, cosmetical stuff modernized nowadays. What, what if, what if a business owner stripped all that off and just said, you know, if you are looking for ADA, you kind of click here and this is the version. Do you feel like that that could be a solution or, or do they need to go and buy something that's um, more comprehensive? You know, that may be, uh, that may possibly be a solution. I think it's sort of, um, you know, business specific because, um, you don't want to create a situation where you're what, you know, what you call sort of the dumbed down website, uh, not pejoratively, but, you know, just meaning from a, a screen reader technology standpoint, it, it's accessible to people. As long as the, the person interacting with that website, with whatever their disability is, can get the, essentially the same information as a person without the disability on the regular site, then you know that may be uh, that may be a, a potential solution you know for uh, a reasonable accommodation under the circumstances. Um, but if your experience as the person with a disability is substantially poorer, meaning that they don't get all the you know most of the same information that a person without the disability is getting, then I think you know you're still at least potentially liable for uh, you know a claim. It, it, it also probably would be a good point for me to, to explain just a little bit about what the, what I'll call de facto standard has become in terms of measuring website accessibility, if you don't mind, if I can. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, the, because the law is a bit unsettled and because uh, the um, executive branch agency, the department of justice uh, that would, uh, ultimately promulgate or issue rules about website accessibility has yet to do that over many, many years. Uh, there is no fine-grained guidance on what website accessibility means from a federal law standpoint. We have the general guidance of the ADA passed in the early 90s before 
there ever was this thing that we call today internet, the internet. But the Department of Justice, the federal agency which is tasked with, in this instance, actually creating and issuing rules, has not done that. There was an effort during the Obama administration that lasted many years and never, you know, ultimately came to fruition during the Trump administration. It's been largely just sort of tabled. So there are no federal regulations today that relate to website accessibility. So what does that mean for, you know, companies out there that are trying to figure out what what does it mean to be website accessible? What do we have to do, right? There's no federal guidelines on this. And so what has come in to fill the void in the absence of any federal regulation is a non-governmental organizational approach. There is a group called the World Wide Web Consortium, WC3, they're known as. Um, And they are an international organization that has over the years themselves developed standards for website accessibility for disabled people. And they have put out uh, guidelines, if you will, that businesses, website owners can use as a kind of a standard, a baseline standard. And now we're up to what what we call as an acronym, a WCAG, W-C-A-G 2.1. That's the version that they've most recently come out with. And there are different levels. There's A, AA, and AAA, which are different levels of accessibility. Uh, most of the courts that have weighed in on this have looked at AA as kind of a, a standard for many businesses. Anyway, the WCAG standard, not a law, by the way, just a, you know, a non-governmental organizational guideline, has become this de facto law, if you will, When I say de facto, I mean, it's the thing that businesses and courts are increasingly looking to in the absence of any federal regulation as the baseline for compliance with accessibility. So um, that's where um, website consultants, you know, the experts that actually come in and help with this stuff, that's what they look to in terms of certifying a website or determining whether your website meets or doesn't meet a standard, that's the standard they're looking at, the WCAG standard um, that is not a law in this country, but has become cited in many legal decisions. And so has sort of become the law in the absence of federal regulation. Anyway, that's a long-winded explanation. I'm sorry to take all that time, but I wanted people to understand. Oh, that's great information. There, There isn't, you know, at the moment, any federal regulation. I don't know whether the Biden administration, assuming it takes, you know, comes into effect in January of 2021, uh, would take a different approach, would be more, you know, uh, involved in uh, restarting an effort to promote, uh, promulgate federal regulation or not. Um, But, you know, at the moment, there's nothing and we're reliant on WCAG. Anyway, so when you hire an expert, that's what they look to. Um, and that's what they will ultimately, um, you know, be guided by in looking at your own website. Good information. Um, other things come to mind. So, you know, I do a lot of podcasts and, and I'm sure others, you know, those are very popular nowadays too. And one of the options after you do a podcast is to do the transcription. You can get it transcribed. And it almost sure. sounds like that should be 
something that you always do because if you ha- if you're dealing with somebody that's deaf and can't hear your podcast it would sound to me like you're making an effort to serve more of your community by going ahead and doing transcription so you have the written version as well um, so it sounds like if you have video content you should do and consider closed captioning and some of these other features um, on your video content to further show proof and evidence of that you're making strides towards um, getting your information into more hands. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I think that that's, um, that's a really sound, you know, judgment call. I think, uh, both from a business standpoint, you know, why, why not make your content available to people that that have hearing issues? Um, and also in this day and age, uh, you know, speech to text technology is accessible it uh, tends not to be cost prohibitive, uh, certainly as it was maybe just a matter of years ago. It's much easier to turn speech into text. So I think that's, you know, that's sound advice. Um, and, you know, it, it begs the question because. Oh. We lost the so most uh, people are listening these days to podcasts on maybe listening, but it begs the question, which is, um, you know, does ADA accessibility apply also to mobile devices? And the answer is yes. It also applies to mobile devices, mobile apps, etc. So now in this context of development, you want to have uh, an examination of your, your mobile, you know, uh, accessibility as well, along with your website accessibility. Great information. Okay, so and I and just kind of touching back on something that you said earlier. You said, um, or it it almost sounded like you want to try to make the experience for everyone be as as close um, or, or almost the same as much as you can. So, you know, when I gave the example before, maybe you could have a website version just for a certain situation that falls under ADA. But it sounds like you don't want to skew and make your website so much different of an experience you want to try to keep and preserve the same experience for all is that fair to say right as best as possible right yeah within reason Remember, so you can't you know the law says a reasonable accommodation you don't have to go you know exact to exact but a reasonable effort to simulate the experience yeah so if you have audio and web or uh, video content and different graphics on your website you just want to think about how would this be interpreted by somebody that's has a, a visual impairment or, you know, um, in some of the research that I did, you can't have a lot of movement on the website. It could cause a seizure. So you might want to have a version that doesn't have right. the, the movement um, for that particular animation or something like that. But it sounds like you can't do too much of an extreme, though, because if you could do too much of an extreme and it completely reduces the experience, then it's it could be viewed I would think negatively. You want to try to keep it as consistent as you can. Is that fair? Right. I think I think that's a, a, a nice way of encapsulating that. Exactly right. Okay. Awesome. And I think one other thing I'll just uh, uh, piggyback on what you said uh, is that while we speak uh, of uh, disabilities mostly uh, being people who are sight impaired or blind or hearing impaired or deaf, and those are you know, categorically the largest groups of people, I think that, um, you know, where we see claims out there. There are other kinds of disabilities uh, 
you mentioned, you know, somebody perhaps with epilepsy who might be triggered by flashing, you know, lighting or whatever on a website. That's another example of, uh, you know, a disability. There are people with movement problems that have keyboard access issues. I mean, the need to have speech controlled, uh, you know, access. So there, there are a host of different other disabilities beyond hearing and sight disabilities that, you know, may be triggered by the ADA as well. So that's one of the things that the WCAG standard covers, but I just want, you know, viewers and listeners to understand that it's not just hearing impaired and sight impaired people. Yeah, that's good. And it, it almost sounds like it's not, it's, it, it shouldn't be one way or the other either, because it sounds like there's so many disabilities that people could have that it might be good to give the, um, the user a, almost like a control set of how they want to view your website. You know, maybe they want the colors to be dimmed down, or maybe they want it to be black and white, or maybe they want the contract. So there, you know, maybe there's a, a, a tool set approach of giving the, the user the choice of how they could, it's kind of like, um, you know, nowadays the dark mode, right? A lot of people like dark mode on, you know, so there's the, 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 um, the lightened mode for daylight and then the darker mode, and you could adjust the color temperature of things so that the blue light, you know, it's kind of like that. Um, I mean, that's from an endpoint perspective or a mobile device perspective, but it sounds like everyone that's listening and viewing should pay attention to this. They should take a look at their website or websites. Maybe they have more than one. Um, they should look at the content there and try to put themselves in the shoes of somebody that might be disabled and try to document and make reasonable effort to accommodate them, like you said, because you want the website um, to be accessible to as many people as possible. Um, and it sounds like annually, is, is annually fair to say that everybody should look at this at least once a year? Yeah, I would like say, I, I think annually is a good benchmark uh, with the caveat that if you do any sort of a major um, adjustment, overhaul, updating of your website. I think that's an important moment in time to reevaluate and think about what you have, um, you know, going on. So I would say annually, sure. But, you know, if you do something significant, I would, I would, um, you know, do it in context of that as well. Okay. Is there any, um, like, what, is there any tip or what, what do you consider as like the, the number one or number two thing that they should do right away? Um, to to better comply. Yeah, I think one of the things I said already is make sure you have a prominent phone number available, uh, you know, uh, preferably toll-free telephone number that allows people to reach your website if they need to, uh, reach your business if they need to. Um, and then I, I think I would, you know, suggest that people budget for um, uh, review by um, a reputable ADA consultant, uh, you know, as soon as they reasonably can within their budget, preferably in 2021, and, you know, uh, devote some resources to that. And one of the other things I will say is that most of the reputable uh, ADA consultants will, uh, once they begin working with you, allow you to put on your website uh, sort of a badge or a seal from, from them that says, you know, website under review uh, by right. so-and-so, okay? Right. And that can also be a bit of a defensive mechanism, uh, and it might fend off, you know, potential plaintiffs or plaintiffs' lawyers from bringing a claim because they see, okay, you've taken this seriously and you're working on uh, remediation. Um, so that's an, 
you know, uh, one of the other values of hiring a, a good consultant is you can do that and you can announce to the world, I'm doing it. So <laughs> lay off of me, you know, right, right. Um, uh, just to frame this a little bit more in terms of context, what we've seen over the last, you know, three or four years is an exponential growth in the number of lawsuits that have been filed in federal court because it's a federal law, uh, that's where many of the sites uh, lawsuits are filed. But there are also a growing number of state laws that are also very favorable. Some of them, by the way, unlike the ADA, allow for a plaintiff to get damages or economic relief uh, if they have a claim. And I will tell you the three major jurisdictions where we see a lot of state court action and the most federal court action are California, New York, and Florida. Those are the big three in terms of number of cases that are brought. Um, and, you know, if you're not in one of those states, don't necessarily think, oh, you know, phew, I'm not, you know, in one of those three states. You can still get sued there because guess what? Your website is accessible in those states. Right. And you may have customers that come to that website there. And so don't think that you may not, you know, be uh, um, at risk just because you're based in, you know, in your case, North Carolina, or in my case, Illinois. Um, so the trend is, is still rising in the number of cases. And that's why I recommend that companies uh, from small to large put some time and effort into assessing where they are with this. Okay. What, what about insurance? Does insurance help protect the client in, you know, if they um, get hit with a lawsuit? And the answer is, uh, it depends. Sometimes, yes. Uh, you should check your coverage to see whether it's your commercial general liability coverage that might come into play, whether it's covered under advertising insurance or something like that. Uh, but I've had situations where certain of my clients have been able to, you know, when they get a claim, they give it over to their insurance carrier and their carrier says, yes, we will cover you. And I've had other circumstances where there is no coverage. So I think that's a a very good question to ask, and it's one that your listeners and viewers should consider, you know, when they're thinking about assessing their risk here is, you know, uh, frankly, one of the big risks is, uh, do I have to hire a lawyer and start paying the lawyer to defend me in this? And the answer is, yeah, you're going to have to hire a lawyer, but it makes a big difference if that defense cost is coming out of an insurance company's pocket versus your own. So, you know, I think it's a worthy exploration for any business to, you know, call your broker and say, hey, you know, I haven't got a claim yet, but if I got a claim, you know, would I be covered under this? And if so, what are the limitations that I might face? You know, so that's, that's a great question. So that's probably good, good practice to maybe reach out to your insurance agent once a year to check your coverages and, and score your risks based on, you know, wh what options you have or what you're signed up for right. now and maybe consider increasing your budget to accommodate just like you should be doing for cyber insurance and things like that. Absolutely. Um, one, one other tip that I just thought of as we're talking about this, which is that for those businesses that are maybe not yet online or they're online, but they're going to do a wholesale rebuilding of their website and they've already hired a consultant a web developer to do that. One of the other things you can think about is shifting liability risk to your vendor, right? So, in your contract with your vendor who's building your website, you may want to make them represent and warrant to you that the site that they build will be compliant with the ADA. Um, 
and you're pushing off onto them the potential liability for a claim that emerges or might emerge if that site is not compliant. So you'll put a representation and a warranty and then an indemnity clause that says, I get sued, you got to defend me in this, okay? So that's another way to sort of shift and mitigate risk in this area. And more and more vendors, I think, in this space are seeing these kinds of asks from clients. Um, you know, you may or may not have the economic clout to be able to ask for that from a, from a vendor, but uh, that's something to think about. Oh, that's great information, too. What about um, policies on your website? You know, how you have to adhere to certain state laws, terms of use, privacy policy, et cetera. Should there be an area that talks about ADA compliance in your policies? I've seen that. I've seen some uh, some websites will have an ADA compliance, you know, piece. Um, while I don't believe that that is necessarily required under the law, it's not necessarily bad practice. If, if you have something to, positive to say there, you know, um, uh, sometimes, you know, I mentioned a moment ago, this notion of a vendor giving you a badge, you know, yep. an ADA compliance vendor saying, my site is under review. Sometimes I've had clients that will build out a little page, you know, when they click on that badge, they'll be brought to a page that will give more information about ADA accessibility, what they're doing now to try to make the site accessible. If there are problems, contact so-and-so. So, you know, it's, again, not from a legal standpoint, from just practical business standpoint, I think that that's probably not a bad idea. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate all the great information you were able to share. Is there anything else it's that you can pleasure. think of? Oh, uh, I, you know, uh, there are, uh, the law is shifting uh, much like, you know, uh, a California fault line right now <laughs> in this area. Um, and uh, so I would say uh, that I don't think there's going to be any major shift away from exposure or away from liability for website access. In fact, I think the trend has moved toward, yeah. toward access. And I think the courts are leaning more and more in favor of access as opposed to away from it. So I think if I was in the, you know, thinking about my website and my business, I would think I, I would be thinking, yeah, this isn't going to go away. This is something I should deal with um, on a broad brush level. I think trending wise, that's where things are heading. So yeah, I, uh, I agree. Yeah. Anyway, I uh, appreciate your, your, uh, your questions and giving your, your viewers and audience a chance to think about this, this important issue. Again, my name is Steve Barron. I'm here in Chicago at Barron Harris Healy law firm. And, um, happy to take inquiries from people if they have interest. They can find us at our website, which is bhhlawfirm.com. Thank you again. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Cybersecurity and Compliance with Craig Petronella. Listen to all of our podcasts on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Visit us online at petronellatech.com to book a meeting with Craig about your business. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity and Compliance Podcast with Craig Petronella. For other episodes and more information, visit PetronellaTech.com. Also visit our other websites, ComplianceArmor.com and BlockchainSecurity.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and stay secure.